Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Death Race, an arcade game built in 1976. The premise is simple. You're the Grim Reaper, and your goal is to run down gremlins with your vehicle. With each successive kill, a gremlin lets out one last scream before turning into a graveyard crucifix on the screen. I'm standing, one hand on a plastic wheel and the other on a two-speed shifter. My right foot lays on and off an acceleration pedal. Beside me is my opponent, and he also happens to be the man who brought this very game back from the brink of extinction. We'll meet him in just a minute. First, I have a match to win, and I'm leading. I find myself drawn to these gremlins. They're white, stick-like figures. They dash around in what looks to be complete chaos, desperately trying to avoid death. Before I know it, the wheel locks up and the game's over. Down by two. Turns out, while I was focusing on gremlins, I totally blew my lead and lost. That was very fun. This is a very fun game. Okay, time to meet this mystery man who's showing remarkable restraint in celebrating this come-from-behind victory. My name is Gary Vincent. Gary is a vintage arcade game technician, but that's not all. And I am the founder and curator of the American Classic Arcade Museum, which is located on the third floor of Fun Spot, the largest arcade in the world. You're looking for excitement, looking for family fun. We're going to put a smile on your face. Fun Spot's number one. At Fun Spot, we have a game. With the newer arcade games downstairs, up here, it's all classics. Pinball, Miss Pac-Man, Tron and even the first coin-operated game ever created. And Gary repairs and preserves all of them. Gary's connection to this place basically goes as far back as his earliest memories of the arcade. What was your first experience with the arcade? First experience was beach arcades, which is where most people find arcades back in the 70s. Where were you living? I lived in Connecticut at that time. I used to go over to a uh, an amusement park. It was called Ocean Beach Park. Okay. And they had an arcade there. And then uh, also we used to summer uh, vacation here in New Hampshire. And we would always come to Weir's Beach. What was sort of the arcade scene like back then? Well, in when I lived in Connecticut, there was no arcade scene around me at all. So my arcade experiences were when we came up here to New Hampshire. So this was the on. New Hampshire this, was the big spot. That was the spot. You know, you had fun spot here and then you had the beach arcades a mile down the road. So, you know, in this very close area, you had four arcades. <laughs> and it was 
great fun, you know? So take me back. Like, you walk in to Fun Spot from years ago. Like, what was it like inside? Uh, much smaller than it is right now. It was one floor, and there was probably 60 machines and a giant slot car track in the middle of the room. Now, these were the big slot cars that were probably six or seven inches long, three or four inches wide, not little tiny HO size ones. So this, okay. it was a big track. The track was took up an area probably 40 by 20 or 25. And that was, was like in, the centerpiece. Of, oh, yeah. It was yeah, okay, enormous. So that, <laughs> yeah. And who was here? Like, was like, I'm, I noticed walking in, like, it's like a lot of people with their kids and stuff like that. Was it the same scene back then? Yeah, there was a lot of families because this had always been a traditionally a vacation area. And then you had a lot of the local kids also. But no, we were coming just to hang out because we weren't from the area at that time. So we really didn't know anybody. Yeah. Got to know employees here at Fun Spot and the owners. And that's how I ended up working here because uh, August of 1981, a lot of the students who were entering freshman year in college left early yeah. for orientation. And Sandra Lawton, the daughter of the owner, came up to me and she said, hey, Gary, you around for like another three weeks or so because uh, we need some help. Do you want a job for three weeks? I said, sure. Why not? This seems like fun. And yeah. What was your first job here? I actually was downstairs and it was a combination job. We we had a very, very small prize counter then. Okay. So I was the prize counter person, the floor attendant, and I also was the person renting out the slot cars on the slot car track. The big centerpiece of this the place. The big centerpiece, <laughs> yeah, that first summer. And the funny thing is, is every time you would tell people, you basically they would buy time, a half an hour block, and there was a big box on the wall with eight mechanical timers on it. And when you'd crank up the timer and it would provide power to that track for a half an hour. And you'd give people a controller. They'd go over and plug it in, put their car on the proper color track. And every time I'd tell them, plug in your controller, put your car on the track, do not squeeze the trigger all the way, or the car will shoot off the end of the track. Yeah. Every time. That was almost like a challenge. Put the car on the track, plug the controller in, squeeze the trigger, boom, off the end of the track and onto the floor. <laughs> then then they'd go, oh, you were right. It's like, <laughs> well, I wasn't just saying it to say it. Yeah, it goes right off the end. <laughs> so, so you were like, you started out managing those things and then you stayed on for, I assume, the three weeks. Yeah. Did you keep working there after that? Then I actually went back to Connecticut and started, I had taken a year off. I started my freshman year for uh, chemical engineering. Okay. And I was probably two and a half months into that. And Bob Lawton, the owner of FunSpot, called me at home. And he said, we want you to come back here full time. And I, you know, the chemical engineering was okay, but there had been a couple of explosions at chemical plants down there. And I'm like, mm, yeah, blowing up now, not really excited about Felt that. Felt it a little, little, yeah. little safer here yeah. than, than so, around all the chemicals. Yeah. So I came back here and it was, it was a nice change too. So, and then did you go back to chemical engineering ever? No. Or, and no. did you have any desire to? No. What did your parents no. think of that? 
Oh, they didn't care. They didn't give a no, shit. They no, didn't, <laughs> no, it didn't matter. So then I went and got my uh, two-year certificate in electronics and okay. did electronic repair. And then there were a couple of crash one-week courses that there a gentleman named Randy Fromm uh, taught for business operators because what Randy had noticed is people were transitioning over to video games more and more, but the old-time operators didn't know how to fix them. Yeah. So he would go and fly all around the country and do these one-week-long crash seminars, eight hours a day for a week in like a convention room at a hotel. Yeah. And there would be about 30 or, yeah, about 30 uh, game operators, arcade owners or whatever, would go to these classes and get a crash course in repairing games, which was nice because, you know, electronics teaches you all the basics and background, but not system specific to what you're working on. Yeah. So, it, you know, that gave you a little more precision uh, or, or focus on the arcade games. So you've like always been into fixing older games. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess what what do you like about fixing older games? It's kind of it's a challenge to me because it's what happened a lot in the eighties was companies came out with conversion kits. Okay, and what is a conversion kit? Okay, <laughs> let's say you bought for your arcade six Pac-Man machines because Pac-Man was huge. Yeah, it's amazing. Busy, busy, busy all the time. Well, two years later, you're looking at six Pac-Man machines and somebody's playing one. And you're thinking to yourself, what am I going to do with these other five Pac-Man machines? So back in the day, you had your big companies. You had Atari, Williams, uh, Sega, Nintendo, Exidy, Cinematronics. All of these companies were pumping out games. But then there were other people that wanted to get in on the video game boom, and they couldn't afford a factory building cabinets and such. So what a lot of people did is there was over 100,000 Pac-Man machines out there. They took the Pac-Man game and came up with new code, would burn new ROMs, but use that hardware. So they would sell you a set of ROMs, uh, some artwork for a new control panel and a marquee yeah. and a set of instructions to tell you, pull out these six chips, plug in our six chips, and now you have this brand new game. So what happened is most, you know, a lot of Pac-Mans got converted into something else. And same thing happens with most other games, such as that Senti cabinet that's behind you was converted into an eSWAT, which was a conversion game. Yeah. And all of... Most all of the Senti stuff was torn out of it. So, so were, those I, like, were those like indie games back in the day? Were those like just small producers making weird versions yeah, yeah, of Pac-Man? That's, that's of? actually a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, that, they, they were the indie game makers of the day. Yeah, because they couldn't afford – they weren't like Atari would be like your huge big corporate overlord and they were just trying to take sure. a chunk out of that. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Like, personally, did you like the games that were, like, from the big-name people? Or did you like some of the ones that were more of, like, I guess what we're calling indie arcade games? Uh, actually, both. The big-game companies, of course, had more money for research, more game, more money to pay programmers. And, of course, their games tended to be better. There were some companies that came along that made conversion kits and the games were horrible. Yeah. Others, others had good kits and people liked them. 
So I guess it's a matter of personal preference of, of what you were looking for, but it always seemed to follow a trend where somebody would come out with, let's say, a golf conversion kit for a video game. Okay. So you could play a golf game. I don't know what the big interest was, but all of a sudden, here are six more companies making golf conversion kits for games. So it was really like anything that was coming out, people yeah. were just jumping on that tread oh, yeah. and producing games for sure. it. Sure. And even before that, in the 70s, uh, when when Pong came out, then all, then all of a sudden somebody else makes a game and they're calling it hockey. <laughs> and you look at it and it's like, no, that's uh, Pong. But, oh, no, no, those are goalies. And that's a oh these little these little dashes are a goalie. Yeah, that's now. a goalie. It's yeah. a goalie now. This yeah. is a de- it's a totally different thing. Totally different. <laughs> it's like no, it's pretty much the same thing. Like Gary mentioned, his office has half finished arcade games buried here and there. Gary's office also happens to be his workshop. But before we head in, now's a good time to go over the basic setup to your average arcade game. The setup is fairly simple. First, you have the cabinet the skeleton of the machine. It's where all the guts get thrown into. On the sides of the cabinet are the side art. Now, usually the graphics mocked up on here were often much better than the ones in the games themselves. Gary has a theory. That, I I guess, was to seed your imagination. So when you played this game with, you know, very primitive graphics, you'd be imagining it was the great graphics on the side of the game. Then there's the monitor, basically the television screen. The specifics of these can get pretty complicated, but I'll keep it simple for now. Above that is the marquee. Which lights up and attracts you to play this amazing game. Below the monitor is the control panel. You've got your joysticks, some buttons, or whatever other controls you need to play the game. Inside are the game boards, where the life of the game is programmed. And last, but definitely not least, is the coin door, the money maker. Hours later, sweat pouring off your forehead. $20 out, sure. all my money's gone. <laughs> Go home and call it a day. <laughs> I love this thing. As a game technician, Gary repairs each of these different arcade game parts, all calling for their own set of skills. And that's not taking into account issues that come from outside the machine. A video game cabinet is basically a mouse condominium. (laughs) They, for some reason, even, you know, for decades, they would make games with holes big enough for mice to get in. And I'd say to myself, what are you, stupid? Just put a piece of screening over it or something. There was a marquee glass on the front here. And they crawl up the wiring harness, come in through a small hole, and fill this thing with fiberglass insulation, chewed up pieces of paper, and then they pee and poop all over everything, and it stinks really bad. But the most common thing Gary has to fix? Monitors. Monitors. And fixing these things doesn't come cheap. I've seen people put used vector monitors up on eBay working and put a $600 buy it now on it and it's gone within 10 minutes. Vector monitors are extremely difficult to find and some of them are a little touchy to keep running and we have probably six or eight vectors out on the floor and any given time not all six or eight are working. Those are the tricky ones because nobody makes CRT that's cathode ray tubes. Nobody makes those anymore because they're dangerous and they produce, you know, 
will explode. Toxic waste. <laughs> uh, the exploding part's not bad. It's just like, don't drop it or kick it. Yeah. So I almost make that mistake. There's hollowed out cabinets and cardboard boxes all around. And I get a little bit nosy. In the process, I almost step on a monitor that's just sitting on the floor. They uh, explode like hand grenades if you break them. Seriously, do things do explode around here? Oh, those (laughs) don't. Okay, so their CRT, yeah, these will explode. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out Gary saved my life, or at least saved my legs. (laughs) Almost out there. Yeah. So I'll just be super careful around this one. So I want to talk a little bit more about like getting into the repair portion of things. Mm -hmm. What does that entail? Um, You know, it's there's a lot of different things. Uh, The biggest part is finding outdated components for these games. Treasure hunting of sorts. Treasure hunting, (laughs) you know, scouring the internet, trying to find batches of of TTL chips that you can start stocking up on because things go bad. You just don't go. There aren't really any electronic stores anymore. Yeah. Like back in the old days when you could go to a Radio Shack and actually buy components then toward the end there, the only thing you could buy was cell phones. <laughs> so, yeah, it's always the hunt to find original parts to fix things. And is it a constantly dwindling supply? It, it's dwindling down. Yeah, but the, the nice thing, too, is there is a large fan base for old arcade games. So what we've been seeing over the years, uh, specifically, let's say, pinball machines. Okay. Uh, a lot of the main motherboards in pinball machines were notorious for having NICAD batteries on them. Dangerous chemical batteries? Or? Um, no, they basically it's just a rechargeable battery. Oh, okay. But the problem is when they would go dead, they started to leak. And then they would drip all their goo down on the board, which would eat everything up. And then junk. Game's no good. Yeah. So... People say, oh, if you spend, you know, the next month and all your spare time, you can rebuild that board. Yeah, and then you put it back in the game, and a day later it doesn't work. So people now have been coming out with brand-new replacement boards, all new technology, new hardware, no battery acid damage all over it. And I've done that a lot with games out here. And who are the people who are kind of helping to restore these? Are they, like... Older people, is there a younger generation doing this? Is it people in different countries? Like, where are these coming from? I think it's a little of everything that you mentioned. It's all over the map of mainly people collectors, people who own companies that sell replacement parts for games because a lot of games were destroyed. That was, you know, the spark that got me to start the American Classic Arcade Museum. Was there a game in particular that got destroyed and you were like heartbroken over it? Well, there are some games that there are just no known examples left of because it's like, kind of hard like to... What, what's been lost to the ages? Well, I, I follow... There's a very active message forum called the Killer List of Video Games that has a very nice forum. And the elusive game there that everybody seems to be looking for is a game called Bouncer. Okay. Which was a game where... You know, it's a bouncer at a bar throwing people out. There, there's legend that somebody has one copy, but nobody knows who the person is. But then somebody else says, well, I know who the person is. 
but they don't want their name out there because they know everyone's going to harass them for it. And then people start to guess, well, how much would it sell for if one came up on eBay? Yeah. And what do people would, think? Would it be 5,000? Would it be 10,000? How, how much money would somebody pay? Because there are some people out there with very deep pockets that collect games and getting into a bidding war is no problem for them. <laughs> oh, I'll just put in a bid of $8,000 and nobody's going to beat me. And people will run the price up and then eventually give up and the wealthiest person wins. <laughs> so there there are some games out in like the the people who are in this space that are just like the the holy grail of missing games. Yeah, yeah. And there's some from the 70s people will, you know, put together lists because they'll find uh old game flyer advertisement flyers and they'll go, "Oh, here's another one added to the collection of, you know, games." And then people are like, "I've never seen one." <laughs> and you just don't know, but then every once in a while Somebody finds a warehouse somewhere and there's it's like unearthed 200 games been sitting in there for 35 years. And then everybody drools over it. <laughs> Where is it? Do you have, can you sell anything? You know, I want this. I want that. Dibs. That's my favorite one. <laughs> I, call, I call dibs on that. It's like dibs. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. This sounds a little bit more dog eat dog kind of world. Oh, yeah. That there's no, there's no, uh, I guess, polite conduct here. <laughs> oh, no. And then the, the arguments that start when somebody else buys it and the person who called dibs didn't get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, no. So, okay. So a big part of your job, it seems like, is to actually hunt down both the games and the parts of it. Oh, yeah. What about the repair side of it? Like, what are you repairing? Uh, what does that look like? Mostly what I do is, nowadays, is the hunting. The for, hunting. Yes, yeah, the unearthing of the parts that we need. If I have time, then I love still working on games. And I find, in order to do that, I end up bringing them home and putting them in the middle of our family room, which my wife really does not like. I don't blame her. So, so you drag these like several hundred pound consoles, throw them in your living room and we'll just work oh, yeah. on them. Yeah. Yeah. I could see, I yeah. could see why she might doesn't, not like that. Doesn't go over well. Don't like the time <laughs> she came home from work <laughs> and I had, there's this stuff that comes on rolls for like uh painting rooms. You can roll it out and tape it to the floor so you don't get anything on it. Yeah. And I had four games in the middle of the, <laughs> the family room, and I was painting the cabinets in the house. <laughs> so, like the whole the whole living room's taken uh, over, and it reeks like parts everywhere. <laughs> I had tables set up with pieces on them, and I just got the look. It was. I'm like, but it's what I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but other people love their living room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, how soon are those leaving? As soon as they're done. <laughs> so, okay. So it seems like you also have uh, a staff of people here who are working on repair. Oh, yeah. How many people here work on repairing games? Uh, three. Three people. Yeah. And is there anything else with kind of like maintaining these games that you work on? Uh, maintaining? Uh, this is kind of a fine line. People will say, well, why didn't you repaint that game? Yeah. It's, you know, the cabinet's dinged up and... You know, there's one place where somebody wrote their name, but at what point does it become a replica and not a restoration or a preservation? 
So a lot of times I do what I feel is needed to make the game safe. I've had, just as an example, some conversion kit games that were done. Now, keep in mind, some of the people back in the 80s that were doing conversion kits had no electronic skills whatsoever. Yeah. So the manuals to put the conversion kits in were not very specific, and they sort of assumed that you knew what you were doing. And we've had games in here where no fuses. Somebody's built the whole thing with no fuses in it. So if something shorted out, most likely you'd have a fire. Oh, so these games could uh, explode. If Well, the ones, the conversion kits. The, as uh, Are there any dangerous games in here right now that I need no, to worry about? No. <laughs> Everything <laughs> I go through, yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm not going to go into there and play a game and then it's going to burst into flames on no, me. No. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> that is another funny story, I'll tell you. <laughs> Okay, so during the boom years of the arcade... Roughly 79 to 83, you know, you could eat Pac-Man cereal out of your Pac-Man lunchbox, out <laughs> of drinking milk out of your Pac-Man thermos. And I was down working in our Amherst location. And back in those days, we didn't have a candy vending machine. We had racks of candy on the counter. So this kid comes up to the counter and very nonchalantly goes, there's a game on fire. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, yeah. So I run to the other side of the room and you steal like half a dozen candy bars. Yeah. So I'm looking at him and I'm like, really? So where's the game on fire? And he turns around and he points and I look and there's smoke billowing up from the far side of the room. I'm like, ah, ah. <laughs> so I run over there pull this like 350 pound game out from the wall, rip the plug out of the wall. And I'm like, there's still smoke billowing out of this. And I knew smart enough. I'm like, don't open the back and feed it more oxygen. Yeah. So I grabbed a hand truck and I like wheeled that thing out onto the sidewalk outside as fast as I could. Fortunately, it was more smoke than fire. Yeah. But it was the monitor. And apparently these monitors, unbeknownst to us because these were new at the time, but now we know years later that these things were very dangerous. Yeah. And they were notorious for bursting into flames. So when I opened the back, it was all full of smoke and there was probably half-inch flames coming off the board. So I just blew them out, <laughs> left the game sitting outside to air out because it stunk. So, yeah, that was that was big excitement. Okay, side question. Did that kid steal a bunch of candy? I have no idea. At that <laughs> point, I was just glad the building didn't burn down. So you might have lost some candy, I saved the could. building. Yeah, saved yeah. the building. Yeah. The game might have been broken forever. Yeah, I don't think we ever did fix that game because that was it really wasn't that popular. Yeah. And we just put a conversion kit in and changed the monitor. So out of all the games you've interacted with, do you have a favorite? I don't know if I really have a favorite anymore because mostly what I enjoy now is the thrill of finding the parts for a game I want to put together. And now I'm to the point where I'm looking for the obscure and the unique. You're looking for bouncer. Yeah, yeah. If I found a bouncer, that would be great. And everyone on the forum would hate me because I found one. Um, 
but it's uh, you said that I thought you said this forum was nice. They sound like kind of brutal though, like oh, calling dibs. Like if they, somebody oh, yeah. breaks their dibs, oh, yeah. people are coming after well, them. It's the I don't even want to be known. I like when you're like, oh, the person who owns Bouncer doesn't even want to be known because the forum people will come after. Oh them. yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 <laughs> typical of anything on the internet. You know. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> nice until you got something they wanted, and then you know if the keyboard commando at home is tearing you apart. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you so ju- you just won at internet. <laughs> As we finish up, I notice one machine tucked beneath stacks of paper and more boxes. Its flowing curves and red glitter paint look like a muscle car crossed with a spaceship that's been ripped out of the 1970s. What is this computer space game? I love this like giant console, sparkly red color. Okay. <laughs> computer space. Yeah, let's look at computer space because I'm totally enthralled we by this thing. We have two of them. There's one out on the floor working, but computer space came out in 1971. It was the first commercially available coin-operated video game. This is the first game that has ever taken a coin. Yes. Wow. Even though it's the OG arcade game, the first of its kind, the breaker of chains, the machine is not the crown jewel of the classic arcade museum. That honor belongs to another game, one you already know so well. Probably the rarest piece we have out on the floor right now is our death race machine. And people will say, well, I've seen death race before. And I always will say, have you ever seen a yellow one? Because every Death Race machine I have seen since they came out in 76 was either a black cabinet with white graphics or it was a white cabinet with black graphics. This one is yellow from the factory with black graphics on it. It's the only one I've ever seen. And the game comes with a bit of a legacy. When Death Race came out, it was hugely controversial. The premise of the game was you run over people and they turn into crosses. So that, in 1976, did not go over very well. And then there was rumor that the original working title of the game was called Pedestrian. And there, there was even a, a segment on 60 Minutes back in the day about the violence in video games. And Death Race was at the forefront of this scandal. The game is tame by today's standards. Almost laughably so. But Death Race caused such a public outcry that the World Weekly News warned. The video game craze that's sweeping America like a plague can produce a crippling, hypnotic-like addiction that could destroy a child's mental health. When we come back, I ask Gary the question every antagonist is itching to ask. Why bother preserving these hunks of scrap metal? All that and more when we come back. Do you know someone that should be on Weird Work? Send us a message at hello at weirdworkpodcast.com and let us know. Who knows? They might just be our next guest. All right, now let's get back to the show. We're back in Gary's office. I cut to the chase. Games have changed and evolved so much over time. Oh, uh, sure. And not to be rude, but like, what would you say the point is of maintaining these games? History. Um, 
And it's funny because people have asked me that question before and they're like, an arcade museum? Well, that's kind of a stupid thing to save. Why are you doing that? Yeah. And I, and I always say to them, I'm like, who decides what is worth saving and what isn't? History is history. You know, there, there are people, and, and not to say anything ill of anything else, but when I'll go, there's marble museums where you can go and look at 25,000 different marbles that oh, kids okay. used to play with. <laughs> You know, there's you you name it. There's a museum for it, and it's just a matter of what your personal passion is, and the the history. You know, there is a lot of history with this that people don't realize. In fact, we actually um, every fall we host the freshman class of Champlain College here. About 200 students arrive with faculty, and they are all in various game development degree programs to get into either programming or artwork or music direction or whatever. So they come here because, as I've said to people before, you can dress up a game all you want with the world's fanciest graphics and the best music and whatever. If the game stinks, nobody's going to play it. Yeah. So the gameplay has to be good. And what I always stress upon them is think back to the time when these games were coming out. So we have guest speakers come that are either currently working in the game industry or we've had people here that were on the programming team for Miss Pac-Man or the uh, Cruising USA, Cruising Exotica. I love Cruising USA. And, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> the, the, the thing that I stress upon students is you have to have good gameplay first, come up with a good game concept, and then develop your graphics and your audio around that because if if the gameplay is not good people won't play it what are like what are people's reactions though who are going into these really large companies where they come here and play these games like are they excited or are they like i could i could build this on a phone in five minutes you know like what is what is their kind of reaction to these games right they it is uh, i think a little bit of uh a shocking experience for them to realize, you know, the hardware they were using back then and the limited amount of uh, storage space. We were at um, a game show in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. We had been invited down there. And one of the people on our panel was Warren Robinette, who designed Adventure for the Atari 2600. Okay. And... (laughs) You know, he was telling people there, he said, you know, we had four kilobytes of memory to work with, 4K. You had to put your game on there and all your audio in 4K. It's almost impossible to wrap your head around that number. To put it into context, a four kilobyte arcade game takes up roughly the same amount of memory as the last four text messages on your cell phone. That is it. In this way, it's not hard to see the historic programming significance of these machines. So one of the things I kind of wonder about, too, is like the arcade, it seems like a very much an experience. And like it's big. There's lots of people here. It's physical. Um, I'm just wondering if you can talk maybe about the switch to everybody sitting in their home alone playing games online. Like, right. Do you think we're losing something by not having these public spaces? 
I do, but you know what I've seen a resurgence of, and it is the bar arcade. Okay. Okay. So that has also dried up the game, the classic game market and parts, because I think people realize that naturally people are social beings. Yeah. And, you know, back when, when VCRs became very popular, people said, oh, movie theaters, a thing of the past. They're all going to close down. People are just going to get these movies and watch them at home. Well, it didn't happen. Um, and the same thing with the arcade experience. People like to be out somewhere doing You can't sit in your house forever. So they love coming to the arcade. They love playing games. But then people started getting on this whole retro bandwagon of... When do you think the retro bandwagon started? I'm going to say it's within the last 10 years as far as like these bar arcades go. Yeah. And they're very popular. And, you know, I, I've heard there's a couple of them supposedly opening up here in New Hampshire where people are looking for 50 or 60 classic games and they're going to put them in a bar atmosphere with food and stuff. And, and the concept works well. Gary's preserving something much bigger than wooden arcade cabinets and deceptively dangerous monitors. Gary's work preserves the history behind these games, the men and women who built the game boards, the arcade gamers who found a passion in something they never knew they could love, and the game developers who dreamt of worlds that transcended the finite amount of memory they were programmed on. The greatest joy I get is when you see the first-time visitor. And, and you have to think that most of these people who were teenagers yeah. or late teens during the boom years, they're now in their early 50s. You know, They're around 50 or so. So they've got their career under their belt. Maybe a lot of their kids are grown and have moved out. And, hey, I heard about this place up in New Hampshire. And then they come in, and if I'm fortunate enough to be standing there when they come in, the look is always, I'm like, this is why I do this. What's the look like? The look, the look is just that that wide-eyed, <laughs> you know, op- jaw drop. Gaping uh, jaw. Yeah. Speechless and, look. Is it like, this is awesome. Is it just like nostalgia for? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, things are, they run through cycles, and people get older yeah, it'll probably change it's do you think people will continue to come to the museum as time goes on or do you think that eventually these things will just end up in a warehouse somewhere you know i have not seen a decrease at all um people it goes back to my my point about good gameplay yeah whereas uh, the comparison i always make is if i drive down the road to walmart right now I can still buy Monopoly, The Game of Life, Parcheesi, Checkers, Chess. If gameplay is good, people will continue to play it. And I see people coming in and, oh, this is a great game. And I'm like, that game is 40 years old. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoy it because it's, you know, it's just a tip of the hat back to the game designers who did it. What do you hope FunSpot becomes and and the museum here grows into over time? Well, see, that's the other thing, too, is we we are located inside of FunSpot yeah. and graciously get the use of the space for free, and we often are completely swallowed up 
in the enormity of Funspot itself. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's a branding issue, I guess, because we're the American Classic Arcade Museum. We're located inside of Funspot. Yeah. And quite often, everybody just calls us Funspot. So it's it's a little tough. You know, Funspot will be continuing on for, it's been here 60 some odd years now. It'll it'll go on for as long as people like going out and having fun. And the Arcade Museum, I would love to see it grow. There's a lot of static displays that we have been working on behind the scenes that we want to get out just so that people can have more of an educational experience. That's very exciting to me. So you um, hope to make the space more educational as time oh, goes definitely, on. Oh, definitely. Definitely. That is that is the goal. And continue to like bring students and other people into the area. Correct. And I guess what is the lesson that you hope that people learn from coming to the museum? Wow. You know, there really isn't one thing, but just maybe to realize that there is a whole world of history that they don't even know exists. Open up their eyes to it. Open up their eyes to it. Yeah, definitely. Gary doesn't get to play these games all that much anymore. But as soon as we're in the arcade, Standing at the ready behind our respective wheels of death race, it's impossible not to see that spark behind Gary's eyes. It's like he's aged 12, 42, and 92 all at the same time. You see, when you're playing these games, you feel like a kid experiencing something new for the first time, all the while still well aware that you're feeling nostalgia for the past. It's kind of like eating in a 1950s diner. You're living in the present while experiencing the past at the same time. And thanks to Gary's work, these machines will live on to be played by the next generation of arcade goers. Gary's work makes these classic arcade games death-proof. He saves them from being lost forever. And it's a sentiment I don't mind getting swept up in walking around the arcade room floor, all for the price of a few quarters and a well-maintained machine. I, I like doing this, like piecing games back together from a pile of parts I've collected for 10 years. That I love doing. I really do. This episode was written, produced, edited, mixed, and directed by Matthew Brown, with additional recording help from Letitia Dopartoli, a voice reading from Henry Franco, and original scoring by Matthew Brown. We'd like to thank everyone at the American Classic Arcade Museum and Fun Spot in Laconia, New Hampshire. You can learn more about Gary's work and the classic arcade games mentioned in this episode over on our Facebook and Twitter at Weird Work. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're getting your podcast. As always, I'm your host, Sam Balter, and stay weird, you magical space creatures. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.